You're listening to the James Faith in Jesus Work Series, preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Over the past 30 weeks or so, we have walked through this book of James very carefully. And the Holy Spirit has used this book to shake me up in more than one way, on more than one occasion. In particular, I think the phrase, if it is the Lord's will, we shall live and do this or that, is is a phrase that has been in my head for a few months. If it's the Lord's will, I'll live and I'll do whatever he wants me to do. And... But there's been many things throughout the the journey. James is just packed with good, practical truth for us to live out. And his mission is very clear. He is teaching believers how to possess their faith. And he never pulls any punches, right? He never shies away from making us feel uncomfortable. He's taught us, in the 108 verses, over 54 commands that we are to follow. He's taught us that in trials, and that trials will definitely come, But in trials, God uses those things to perfect us, to mature us. And that at the end of the trial, we can go through with joy because the end we know that he's using it for our good and for his glory. We've been taught to love others and specifically love others that are sometimes hard to love. We've been taught to give ourselves for the poor, for the widows, for the orphans, to love those that others, that that society might leave behind, to love those who have nothing to offer us. We have learned that our tongue is both powerful and often an unruly evil, that it cannot be contained or controlled by our own will, that the only hope we have is a transformed heart by the gospel. He put his psychologist hat on in chapter 4 and helped us understand the root of our conflict. You have conflict with other people in your life? Welcome to the party. This is what humanity is all about. But why does that happen? Because we have our flesh within us, and it's fighting against us at every turn. And so the answer is, draw near to God. Put away those things. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Put away those evil things. Um, Kill your flesh and draw near to God and seek to do his will. We learn at the end of chapter 5, chapter 4, the... Bittersweet truth that our lives are are short, that they're frail, and that they should be lived every moment seeking to do the will of God. In chapter 4, we were taught of the danger of riches, the potential danger of riches, and also that God would would make all suffering right, that he would make injustices right. And and one day, all that seems to be chaos and, and a mess with this world, the perfect judge will come down and he'll set it straight. That's an encouraging thought. Final lesson that we've seen last week is just the power of prayer and the need for us to be praying for each other, praying for those who are sick and those who are sinning, and confessing ourselves, being transparent with one another. And and he's building, I think, on that idea that we are bound to each other within the church family tonight. And so before he abruptly sets down his pen, James has one more lesson for us. That lesson will surround what happens when one of us wanders. Let's begin our reading in James chapter 5, verse 19. Brethren, if you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know 
that he which converts the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. There are two ways that you can understand these verses. One way is that this is a call for evangelism of the lost. Right? That James is writing here at the end, the last thing he wants them to go out and do is find those who are erring from the truth and convert them so that you can save them from the penalty of their sin, that, that, um, that they will be saved from death and hide a multitude of sins. That's one way. And the other way is that this is a call for the restoration of a wandering believer. And I believe that this second way is a better way to understand it. In fact, I don't find this dilemma nearly as hard as the one I, I did last time in the book of James, because that one's just one of the hardest ones, I think, in the New Testament. This one, I think, is a little bit more clear, and there are four key words that help me come to that conclusion. So we'll look at those, and then we'll get into the application. First word is brothers. Okay? He says brothers. He begins this, and this is kind of a pattern in the book of James. He says brothers 17 times, and as far as I can tell, every one of those times is referring to another Christian. Okay? Other believers. He's, t- he's referring to them as brothers. And so it wouldn't make that much sense to me to say, if brothers, if one of you, if the, if the you is not a believer, right? He's been calling them believers the whole time. He also goes on and says, if you're erring from the truth, and this word erring from the truth is wandering from the truth, or roaming away from the truth, or going astray from something that you're currently at. And again, that teaches us something, because it's not that this person has never known truth, it's that this person has known truth and been in the truth and now is wandering from it. Okay? So there's a difference there. The idea of the word convert is, and I understand that, that when we see the word convert here, we automatically think conversion. And so that makes us think, okay, well, this must be evangelism then. But the, the idea here of the word convert is it's a return or a re- reverting back to. Okay? So converting someone in this sense is returning someone back to something. Finally, the word soul, there are three words that are found in the New Testament that are translated either soul, spirit, or life. And one of the words most often refers to an eternal soul. One of them always refers to uh, just this life. And the word that James uses here can go both ways. It can refer to what in some passages seems to be clear that it's talking about an eternal soul that someone has, that that's their life beyond their body, and sometimes it seems like it's referring to just their life, the, the, the soul that they have in this life that, that will one day die. So it's, it's not clear what he's referring to based on that word, but it, when we take all of those other things together and we look at brothers returning to, it seems to me that he's talking about a, a brother in Christ. What does it mean to hide a multitude of sins? It, well, the, the words mean literally to cover up a ton of sins, a lot of sins. And so I don't know if that means saving them from committing sins in the future. could be a, a thing. It could mean saving them from the consequences of their sin. It could mean um, bringing them to a place where their sins are forgiven. Uh, it could mean all of those things together. Uh, but again, I think that either one of those things can refer to somebody who is saved or not saved. So back to our text. Here we are told that if any of you err from the truth, and one, 
someone within the church converts them, they should know that converting a sinner, which is just a sinful person, it's not necessarily like this sinner is someone who's not saved compared to saints who are saved. When it converts the sinner from the error of their way, they save the soul from death and hide a multitude of sins. Okay, so, what do we do with that? Well, I think there are two very clear principles here for us to understand. The first one is, there is a danger of spiritual drift. There is a danger of spiritual drift, and it is ubiquitous. Right? We all experience it. There is not a Christian that lives this life that, that never experiences some kind of spiritual drift. Um, there's a, a television show uh, that aired for, I think, like 10 years, and it was called Wife Swap. And it's a weird, weird show, weird premise, right? That you take two people, two families, and you swap wives, and then they just, like, live out their lives for a, a period of time. And you get to experience what it's like to live somebody else's life. That's the idea. What, what would it be like? And, and, I mean, kind of a garbage television show, but the premise is fascinating. The idea, what would it be like if I could live another person's life? What would it be like if, if I could be in the mind of Eric Alfaro for a day and just know how he thought and see the world from his perspective and, and know what it was like to be him? And do you know what I think would happen? Do you know what I think would happen if we were able to do this with other people, other believers in our church family? I think we would be shocked at the struggles that others face. I think we would be shocked at the defeat that they sometimes feel. And we don't see it, right? We see this person, and, and we don't see that struggle. We don't see the defeat. We don't see the self-doubt or the temptations or, or whatever they're going through because we've learned to put on a pretty good front, right? And so that's what we see. But I think if we were to be able to get in the mind of another believer here, we would begin to see that they struggle, that they doubt, that they're wrestling all the time. I think we would see that they're way more like us than we think. Because that's all of us. I think we'd see that sometimes they have a tendency to wander, just like we do. The greatest hymns of our faith was, is Come Thou Fount, and there's such wisdom in the lyrics. It was written in 1757, but it was written by a 22-year-old kid. I'm 32 now, so I can say that. 33 soon. His name is Robert Robinson. And he wrote, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Why? Why would you be prone to wander and to leave the God you love? And yet, we can completely identify with that sentiment. David the king had the same problem. And in Psalm 119, verse 10, he wrote, With my whole heart have I sought thee. So it begins with this idea that I I put everything into you, God, into my relationship with you, into your word, into knowing you. And then he follows that up with, Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Well, David, if you're putting everything into God, you're never going to wander. Yes, he is. Yeah, there are absolutely times when we feel like we're close to God and we want Him and we know Him and then a few days later, 
It's a struggle to pick up our Bibles. You know it's time to pray, and you're like, I don't know if I want to pray. Because we're prone to wander. There's a danger. And part of the danger is that wandering doesn't happen all at once. And so, before we get into how we deal with wander, I think it's important for us to understand that wandering can be a serious issue in the life of any believer. Casting Crowns wrote a song called Slow Fade. And the lyrics go like this. It's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white are turned to gray. Thoughts invade, choices are made. A price will be paid when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. It's a slow fade. I like the line he goes later on in the song. Be careful if you think you stand. You just might be sinking. People never crumble in a day. Daddies never crumble in a day. Families never crumble in a day. But the fact of the matter is, they do crumble. We've seen it. We go through the church directory um, to update it. And it's fun to look through the new directory and see new faces. It really is. I love seeing that what God is doing in our church and seeing the new families and, and seeing you know, the, the potential here. One of the sad parts about the church directory is untagging the people that have walked away. No? And I, nobody else, there's a few of us that, that see that happen, and, and, but all of us kind of see, see that happen, right? We all see people leave. And how does that happen? How do you go from somebody who's like there all the time, who loves the Lord, who's serving the Lord, and, and a few years later, man, no time for it. No time for church. You know, just wrapped up in their lives, wrapped up in all these other things that are now so much more important than the God that they once loved. It's a slow fade. And people do crumble. And it's a serious problem. So, test. Have you ever experienced what Robert Robinson and King David and Mark, writer of Slow Fade, are attesting to in their own lives? Have you ever experienced that slow fade? In fact, I considered, I don't know if we should do this, but I considered actually doing a show of hands. How many people would say that you've, you've felt this at some point in your life? You've felt yourself begin to drift away from the God that you love. Okay. So if this is you, you're in good company. Or bad company. But we're all bad together, so it feels better, doesn't it? Um, and some of it, some of it is the ebb and flow of Christianity. Some of it's part of Christian maturation that God brings us to these mountaintops where we're excited about Him and close to Him. But He doesn't keep us there because He knows that we're going to grow in the valleys. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote about God doing this, and he said it is during such troughs, when a trough is like a, a point of low activity, achievement, or satisfaction. So at such points in your life where things are difficult. Much more than peak periods that the Christian is growing into the sort of creature God wants him to be. Hence, prayers offered in the state of dryness are those which please God best. That's, that's true. When you call out to God, when you don't feel like it, I think that's very pleasing to God. So the bad news is, this unchecked wandering 
could have disastrous consequences. God sometimes brings us to these places. Sometimes all of us will experience this, this drift sometimes and need to be brought back in. But the bad news is when that person who's wandering is not brought back in, when they continue to wander and continue to drift, there can be disastrous consequences. First, we lose the desire for truth, and we lose the desire for church family and community, and we lose the desire for Christ. And very soon, we're off into something we never, we never would imagine. What happens so often is that people don't, don't immediately change their doctrine. People start to get pulled into one sin or the other, and eventually, their doctrine has to change. Because they can't continue in the life that they're living with the doctrine that they have. And so, I don't like to see God that way anymore. I think that's just a really judgmental view of who God is now. Or, you're self-justifying. You're changing what you think about God and who you think about God, who God is and who God has revealed himself to be because you need to, because you need to accommodate the sin that you've allowed in your life. And it can be disastrous when that happens. The good news is our desire to wander is surpassed by God's desire to pursue. He loves you. And he's not letting you go. He's not just opening up his hand and saying, sure, get out. Okay? No, he's, he's holding on to us, and he's pursuing us. And one of the greatest ways that God does this, I mean, God's primary design to keep us wed to the truth is the binding cords of the local church. Right? It is the people in this room, the people that we, we fellowship with on Sunday mornings and hopefully through the week. It is those people that God is planning to use in our lives to keep us attached to the truth, both in doctrine, and maybe even more obviously in our morality, in our behavior. When when people in our church see us drifting in one of those areas, they are to call us back. That's the truth of this text. God has given us a body of believers who are here to build up and encourage one another. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Okay, that's the goal. Let's draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For he is faithful, that promise. Don't we all want that? Don't we want to be close to God, holding fast to God, and not wavering, not falling away, not going through these terrible times in our lives? Yes, we do. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. Funny because he says, let us do this as if like it's almost an individualistic thing that we're going like, to hold fast to God by ourselves without wavering. But he does say, let us. And then he makes it clear, we need to be, if we're going to do this, we need to be considering one another and provoking one another to love and good works. You know, we often think of provoking in a negative sense. Like, I'm going to provoke you to do something that's wrong, right? So if I want to draw a penalty on someone that I'm, playing hockey against, I'm going to keep chipping away at them and, and maybe calling their mom a name or something like that. And eventually, if I, if I hit the right chord, that person's going to lash out. I provoked them to do evil. But the Christian is supposed to be provoking one another to do good. That's a different thought, isn't it? How do you provoke another believer to do good? Part of it is just like, hey, why don't you come join us in this service? I'm tired, I want to... This might be more important than what you're, what you're thinking about doing. 
right? I mean, it could be that, that God would use you and use this in your life and, and that you'll be a blessing to this other person and maybe you should get involved in this. Maybe it would be good if we prayed for each other. I don't know if I want to. Yeah, but I really would appreciate your prayers. I mean, what if we provoked each other more often to loving good works? That's what we're supposed to do. He goes on, he says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. So if you want to know more clearly what he's talking about, make sure you're getting together with the church family and so much the more As the manner of some is, some people are doing that, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. It actually kind of encourages me that the problem of believers not showing up in church happened back then too. It did. And what was the solution? The solution wasn't better music. The solution wasn't changing the service times. The solution wasn't having the pastors track every single person down, though that might happen sometimes. It might be a good idea to happen sometimes. But the solution was having all the believers within the church provoking one another to love and good works. So, point number one, spiritual drift is a danger. It's a problem. And we should recognize in our own lives and that it's going to be true of others around us. And the second thing is that we are our brother's keeper. We are. Back in Genesis chapter 4, Cain asked God that interesting question. Am I my brother's keeper? And what's interesting about it is that he assumed the answer was no. And I think we all do, right? We, we kind of do, even though we say that, well, I mean, we've heard this before, so we know that it's, the right answer is yes. But are we responsible for our brother in Christ? Are you responsible for your sister in Christ? Now think about it. Before it's a quick yes, are you responsible? Because think about the other things in your life that you know you're responsible for and what that means. If you're responsible for it, it requires you to check up on it. You need to think about it. You need to be aware of what's happening with that thing that you're responsible for. So if you're responsible for a brother or sister in Christ, it has to be more, mean more than just answering the yes, right? It has to mean that there's some kind of like intentionality with your relationship with that person, especially when it comes to the things that we're talking about. Their doctrine, their practice, their behavior. I mean, if I'm responsible for someone, I should be thinking about how they're doing, whether they're growing, whether they're struggling, whether they miss these things, whether they're, you know, it's not a job for one person. No, no one person can do that job, so we are supposed to do it with one another. First, before we push the corporate responsibility for one another too hard, we should see that there is personal responsibility in this matter of spiritual wandering. We are personally, individually responsible for ourselves. This individual responsibility might be lost in our culture, but it's not lost in the New Testament. When you err from the truth, it is primarily and specifically you who have erred from the truth. We don't have to leave the book of James to see this very clearly. In James chapter 1, verse 13, he said, Let no man say, when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. Okay, so begins, he's saying, don't, don't let people say they make these excuses, like, well, this is God's fault, or this is my mom's fault, or this is my wife's fault, or this is, you know, don't make excuses. Verse 14, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. So if you want to know why you're sinning, it's not everybody else's fault. Okay? James 4.1 says, from where does, comes wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members. Where do the fights come from? Where does the relationship struggles come from? Don't they come from within you? Yes. 
Verse 17, he says, Therefore, to him that knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. So, your sin is because you knew you were supposed to do something right and you did the opposite. Okay, so abundantly clear. However, the fact of individual responsibility does not negate the responsibility that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ to love one another. They both happen. One of my individual responsibilities as a believer is to love my brother or sister in Christ. Now, if I don't do that properly, that doesn't mean that they can go sin and say, well, it's Dan's fault. But it does mean that I'm responsible for what I didn't do before God. right? So, so I don't think we should be bearing the responsibility of another's failure. But at the same time, we should be looking to God and saying, God, I know this is something you've called me to. And I think it's something that because of the, the lack of natural community that happens in our culture, it's something that is foreign to us. This idea of being responsible to each other in this, in this more, I don't know, intimate way, if we had a culture that was community, everything, involved in each other's lives, this would just naturally happen more often. But as a church, we need to understand that if we're going to do what the New Testament has called us to do, we need to develop a community that is foreign to the world. It's different than what everybody else has. And so this has to be done very much on purpose. James concludes his letter with this incredible thought. Okay? And then he puts his pen down and he's done. When you go after a wanderer, and that is a purposeful, intentional action, when you go after a wanderer and you can return them to the truth, you have saved his soul from death and covered a multitude of sins. I don't know all of what that means. Man, it sounds good, right? Doesn't it sound kind of like you've saved their life? Like when you're going out, this is a big deal. When you're going after people who are wandering from the truth and you're bringing them back to the truth and back to fellowship and, and being reconciled or restored in the relationship with God, this is a big deal. And so I think that we should take this responsibility very seriously and recognize that this is responsibility given to the church and not to the leadership primarily. Now, certainly leadership should be involved in doing that as believers. But back earlier in James chapter 5, it said, call the leaders of the church, and the leaders will pray, and this is, this is the elders, and this is how this is supposed to happen. At this point, he's referring to all brothers and sisters in Christ and saying, do this for each other. And one of the things that we've had in the past is um, a problem with, okay, we have this many men that are involved in leadership in the church, and how do we figure out, like, if, how do we divide up the church, but when you have new people coming, and how do you figure out that everybody is always being taken care of? And honestly, I don't know if there's a great system that's, that's a fail-safe that's never going to have people fall through the cracks. And it's terrible when that happens, when people do. But do you know what I think that maybe the plan that we're given? It is more so, hey, if the person beside you is not there for a couple weeks, figure out why. Why don't you ask them? Be interested in their lives. Be, be invested. If every single one of us had like a group of 10 or 15 people that we were really doing community with and we were close to, all of those relationships would, would interact like spaghetti and eventually everybody would be touched by like three or four or five or 10 people and the problem would be taken care of by believers in the church. We shouldn't have people that can wander from the truth and not be talked to. 
to let go. It's not the plan. Pilgrim's Progress is a classic book written by John Bunyan. And it's an allegory of the Christian life. How many people have read Pilgrim's Progress? Okay, so about probably 30% of you. That's, it's, a, it's a fantastic book. Along the way, you'll notice something. So this is an allegory of a guy named Christian. His name's changed to Christian. And he is going from the city of destruction on a pilgrimage to the celestial city. Right? And so the whole thing is about him encountering the different difficulties and, and suffering and, and trials that people face along their Christian life and how um, others come alongside them to overcome it. But what's interesting about the book is almost every single time that Pilgrim comes to an obstacle, there is another person there that helps him get through it. The city of Andy Fair, the pain of the plain of ease, the doubting castle, the slew of despond. You've got evangelist, faithful, hopeful, to help get him through those things. The whole book, it just shouts this truth. If we're going to walk through this Christian life well, we need to do the pilgrimage with others. Right? We need people alongside us that are going to help us. What's amazing about the book is that by the end of the book, it's Christian helping hopeful get through his trouble. That's how this is supposed to work. So what do we do with a message like this one? What do we do with a book like the book of James? I mean, really, it's, it challenges us. It, it's so practical. There's so much truth in it. I think what we do is we try and learn what he's saying and then seek the Holy Spirit's help to put it into practice. And if we don't do that, and if we just learn, we've wasted our time. So what do we do tonight? I would encourage you to think about people in your life that might be wandering from the truth and asking God what you can do to call them back, to call them to return. And I think in a group like this, there's probably someone here or a few people here that feel that drift in their own life right now. I'm Come back. Where else is there to go? I mean, he proved his love on the cross. And life definitely sucks sometimes. It's really hard sometimes. There's nowhere else to go. So come back. I'm reading a book called The Screwtape Letters once again. It's the third time through. And I like it because it's a flip side perspective of what we usually read about the Christian life. In the Screwtape Letters, it is a demon named Screwtape who is writing to another demon named Wormwood about how to ruin a believer's life. And so you're getting all of the things that they know to be true about God, but written from the negative perspective. And so... Listen to the words that Screwtape writes to his demon nephew, Wormwood. He says, Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon the universe from which every trace of God seems to have vanished, asks why he has been forsaken, and then still obeys. 
I love that. There are times in your life where you'll feel forsaken, and you'll be like, Lord, I feel like you're not there. I don't know what's going on in my life right now. But when you, in those times, can look up to God, and though you're not, though you don't desire it, and though you don't see him, and though you feel forsaken, you still do God's will. You still obey. That, I mean, there's, there's nothing that Satan can do against that. That is powerful. And so if you are wandering and you feel forsaken, I encourage you to come back. Trust him, obey him, whatever you're going through. If you're here tonight and you're a believer and you're doing all right, look around. Who can we call back? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this book of James that is so practical, that is so challenging for us. And Lord, I pray that tonight, as we examine our lives, help us to honestly assess how we're doing. Are we wandering? Are we struggling? And if we are, Lord, I pray that we come back to you. We come back to our loving Father, who doesn't reveal his plans, but he has revealed his character. You can be trusted and that you love us. Lord, if we are doing okay, if we're following after you, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to see this responsibility that we have to call others who may be wandering to repentance and to restoration. Lord, help us to be um, our brother's keeper. Help us to be aware of what's going on in, in others' lives. Lord, help us to love brothers and sisters in Christ as you've called us to. We pray all of this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.